and welcome to episode one of the Five Points Podcast. I'm Matt Glassman, and this is my podcast that falls at the intersection of political science and current D.C. politics. Today I want to uh, talk about a few things going on in Congress, and mainly I want to answer a question I got from a friend of mine, uh, Andrew Barber, who asked me to do a little recap of where everything stands in Washington politics. This is a great time to do that recap because the Senate left town yesterday and we are now officially on August recess in Washington. This is the period of time when Congress takes its summer vacation and there will be no action in Congress from now until September. Everybody is on vacation. And so uh, in this recap, I'd like to do a few things. One is talk a little bit about the congressional agenda going forward between now and the 2020 election, and then talk a little bit about the politics of that time period and some of the dynamics uh, that are going on that are going to affect how things go over that time. And so I want to start uh, by talking a little bit about the agenda in Congress, what has happened and what remains to be happened. There was never really a situation where this 116th Congress was going to accomplish a whole lot of sort of landmark legislation. Uh, divided government as it is put us in a position where both parties uh, who are pretty far apart on a lot of the major issues were going to be much happier uh, sort of doing things to set up their messaging for the 2020 election uh, rather than compromising to create uh, any major legislation. I don't think it was really the case that we were ever going to see a lot of movement on health care or taxes or, or things like that. People talked about an infrastructure bill being something possible, and I don't think that was ever real possible. And it's pretty clear now that it's absolutely not possible. Uh, as far as the agenda that had to get done, uh, these are the things we talk about as must-pass items on the congressional agenda each year. We're actually pretty far along uh, in those. The National Defense Authorization Act has been passed in both chambers uh, and presumably will have a conference of sorts uh, to hammer out the differences when we come back from the August recess, and that uh, probably will be signed by the president this year, or almost certainly will be signed by the president this year. And second, the appropriations process is actually moving along a little bit better than we thought it might. Uh, all the bills, or 11 out of the 12 bills, have been passed in the House. Uh, none of the bills have been passed in the Senate, but in the past two weeks, we got one of the big hurdles out of the way, which is uh, a deal has been struck between the president uh, the Republicans in the Senate and the Democrats in the House to raise the BCA caps. Uh, the BCA caps are law that was put in place in 2011, which sets uh, in statute maximum amount of discretionary spending uh, the federal government can do. There's really three types of spending in the federal government. There's mandatory spending, which is uh, the bulk of the federal budget, and that's things in law that Congress doesn't have to deal with each year. They're just in law by formula, and that money must go out. That's things like Social Security, Medicare, uh, some agricultural uh, subsidies, and things like food stamps. And Congress doesn't need to deal with that each year. That's mandatory money that they've locked into law is going to be spent unless they stop it. Uh, the other piece of spending is the interest on our debt, uh, which automatically goes out, and that's uh, several hundred billion dollars as well. But about one-third of the federal budget is uh, discretionary spending, uh, and this is about uh, $1.2 trillion this year, um, which is money controlled annually by Congress that they need to affirmatively spend each year or it won't get done. And this is what these BCA caps have set the limits on for the past 10 years. Uh, the problem with the BCA caps is they're too low. <laughs> and therefore, Congress uh, feels the need politically to raise them every couple of years. Uh, and this creates sort of a flashpoint of serious debate. Republicans want to raise the caps on the defense side of the caps. And Democrats uh, also want to raise the defense caps, but 
typically demand that the non-defense spending caps be raised as well. And this is where the problem comes in. The last time they did this in 2018, they set up the 2019 caps to be $647 billion for defense spending and $597 billion for non-defense spending. And the problem is if you don't change the caps again, both those numbers uh, under the original 2011 law need to be cut by about 10%. And that's really a non-starter. And so the debate over raising these caps uh, has become the central feature of the budget process in the last 10 years. And every couple of years has become a flashpoint where you can get things like a shutdown or particularly brinksmanship. But uh, this year, uh, a deal has been struck. Uh, somewhat quickly and early in the process. A lot of people didn't think this deal would be struck until later in the year uh, when these cuts would have plausibly been closer to going in. But President Trump and the Democrats in the House and the Republicans in the Senate have managed to come up with a deal that raises the caps by a significant amount of money um, and doesn't offset those raises with cuts elsewhere. So this is new extra spending, uh, $320 billion or so, only about with, of which 75% or $75 billion is offset. Uh, it's about equal raises for defense and non-defense spending. Overall, it's about a 4% increase uh, in discretionary spending next year over uh, what is currently being spent this year. And generally speaking, uh, this is a deal that is going to make the appropriations process easier to handle. Uh, as we actually divvy up this money into the actual appropriations bills uh, over the coming months. There was a lot of kicking and screaming on the Republican side of this. About two-thirds of the Republicans in the House voted against this bill, even though it had President Trump's support, and about half the Republicans in the Senate voted against this bill. So there definitely is some consternation uh, from members, or at least members who want to look like they're uh, tough on sort of being fiscal hawks. Uh, there is certainly a large caucus of members who wanted this to pass, but certainly want to be on the record against it. And that's, you know, a fine and uh, reasonable position to take for a member. They like looking like defense hawks or excuse me, they look like, like looking like spending hawks while also getting this increase in defense spending money. And so the good news is that we have these top line numbers, which means there isn't going to be a fight over the total amount of money to spend uh, in the budget in fiscal year 20 or 21. Uh, the bad news is that we still have to write the underlying bills. And so far, the bills that have been written in the House uh, are really complete non-starters in the Senate, uh, not just because of how they divide up the money, although that's part of it, but more so because of the limitation riders that are included in these bills. And this is an important thing to understand in the appropriations process, is that appropriations bills are a wonderful place to actually make policy. You're not just handing out money, because what you can do in appropriations bills, and it's done every year in hundreds of places, is you can write in policy by saying zero dollars can be spent on something. And so the Democrats have written in uh, to a number of these bills, things like um, uh, of the money approved in this act, none of it may be used to build a border wall on the southern border, right? And that is a classic limitation amendment, but what it's effectively doing is uh, barring the Trump administration from building a wall on the southern border. You can have all the authority you want to do something, but if you don't have the money for it, you simply don't have a chance to do it. And so those sorts of limitation riders can become politically contentious. Uh, and they are very common. This isn't new to sort of the Trump era. This is a longstanding practice by appropriators to make policy. A classic one from the last 10 years is none of the funds in this act may be used to transfer any prisoner from Guantanamo Bay to the mainland of the United States. That was a policy that the Obama administration was uh, seeking to do, and Congress didn't want to have any of it. And so for almost the entire run of the Obama administration, uh, that rider was in the appropriations bills. And so we're going to have fights over these. There is this gentleman's agreement in the budget deal that these sorts of contentious riders won't be included in the bills, but it's not really enforceable. And I don't see how there's going to be an easy way around them. Um, if the Democrats give up on those riders about the border wall, they're essentially saying um, to the degree that uh, the courts allow it, 
Uh, the president can just transfer this money from other areas under the Emergency Act to build the border wall. And that's not something they want. And so it's also the case that, you know, what of these riders are contentious? It's all in the eye of the beholder. And so I'm sure there's still going to be some brinksmanship on these bills uh, come September and perhaps even a continuing resolution in October. But it should be easier in general because we've taken off the table all the issues surrounding the top line amount of spending. We know how much defense spending we're going to get next year. It's going to be a total of $738 billion, and we don't have to argue over that number. We know how much non-defense spending we're going to get. It's going to be about $630 billion, and we don't have to argue over that number. And so that's you know putting Congress sort of ahead of the game or where you otherwise might have expected them to be at this point uh, this year. And, uh, you know, so we have the Defense Authorization Act, which needs to be conferenced. We have these uh, appropriations bills, which need to be finalized. But now that the, the budget, you know, top numbers are taken care of, that seems like it should be good. So what else is Congress going to do this year? And I think the answer is largely nothing. Uh, there's going to be little stuff here or there. You're going to see some bills passed about this or that. But most of what Congress has to do or what was on the must-do agenda, has now been taken care of. They passed a disaster relief bill for Puerto Rico and other localities that's already been signed into law. They passed a uh, relief bill, a migrant aid relief bill for the southern border, which has now been passed and signed into law. And, you know, again, I don't think you're going to see any big movement uh, coming into an election year in a divided government on things like taxes or health care. You may see little stuff here or there. Uh, on, on various policy areas. And I don't mean to, to belittle those. Things are important. You know, if you have reauthorization acts for, you know, the FAA or slight tinkering in the tax code, or maybe even a prescription drug uh, bill that gets some movement, that's something. But mostly what you're going to see is uh, unilateral chamber action and then a lot of messaging and posturing. And you can already see that. The Democrats have a whole slew of bills. Um, there are election bills, things like gun control bills and things like that that are just non-starters in the Senate. And the Senate's going to have bills that are non-starters too that the Republicans are going to use to either put tough votes to the Senate Democrats or to sort of put out there as messaging bills. And these can be things like the asylum bill that Graham has coming out of the Judiciary Committee now or, or other priorities of the president. Uh, they may try and do something on taxes to try and make the tax cuts permanent, uh, the Trump tax cuts, make them permanent in some way. Uh, that sort of bill might jam up the Senate Democrats. But the, the, I don't see a whole lot more passing uh, in the next year and a half of any sort of major variety. What I do see happening um, is a lot of the basic consequences of divided government, which is that the two chambers, the Senate and the House, are going to take up things that they can do unilaterally. And, and what are those things? Well, in the Senate, it's sort of well known. Oh, I should say, there, there's one, I, I should say, let me rewind a sec. There is one uh, policy area where you might see some movement, although I'm starting to think you're not going to, and that is the proposed revisions to NAFTA. Uh, the U new um, USMCA uh, agreement that Trump wants to have between Canada, the United States, and Mexico. I think it's possible that that could move through Congress, but I'm starting to think it's less and less likely, uh, particularly with the way Trump is behaving with, with tariffs and other trade things. It's not clear to me that the Democrats have a whole lot of interest uh, in giving him a big win on a legislative trade package. That said, this is an issue that cuts across both parties in odd ways. Um, there are protectionists in both parties and there are free traders in both parties. And so the politics of that can get quite complicated. What I want to go back to, though, uh, is the unilateral ability of both chambers to take on things. Uh, in the Senate, of course, there's a lot of constitutional unilateral authority that the Senate has, most notably the ability to confirm executive branch appointees and judicial nominees to the federal bench. Uh, this has become easier in the Senate 
In 2013, uh, Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid and the Democrats abolished the filibuster on executive branch nominees and lower court uh, federal judges. And then in 2017, during the Gorsuch nominations um, and confirmation, uh, the Republicans under McConnell abolished the filibuster for all uh, court nominees, including the Supreme Court. And that means you can now, with a bare majority in the Senate, confirm executive and judicial nominees. And this has had a lot of effects uh, on the types of nominees you get and who, who the president sends up. But the most important effect is that you can now have a party line majority vote in the Senate to confirm judges and confirm nominees. And this is something the Senate has been doing basically nonstop since Trump took office. It's one of the highest priorities of McConnell. Uh, in fact, I think it's a much higher priority for him than any specific piece of legislation. And uh, the results of it have been clear and a, and a huge victory for the Republicans. They've been confirmed uh, a lot of judges, in some cases record numbers, depending how you cut the statistics. And that's a big accomplishment. And, uh, you know, that's not particularly a Trump accomplishment. But if, you know, Trump were to lose office next year down the road, when we look back at the Trump administration, there's be a lot of things we think about. But one of the main things I'm going to think about is how much the Republicans were able to reshape the federal bench in Trump's four years. And uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's a major durable accomplishment for them uh, and something they can be proud of and something that can be worrisome to the Democrats as well. And so that's the main thing we think about when we think about unilateral powers uh, in the Senate. Of course, the Senate also has the treaty power, uh, but that is not really relevant right now. There's no, not a lot of treaties sitting there uh, waiting, to be, <laughs> waiting to be approved by the Senate. Uh, the House's unilateral powers are a little different uh, because we don't typically think of the House as a place that has a lot of unilateral powers. Uh, under the Constitution, they have the, the right to go first on any measure that raises, re raises revenue, so on tax bills. And on Appropriations Acts, as interpreted, the House tends to act first before the Senate. Uh, but the main unilateral power in the House is one that both chambers actually have, and that's the oversight power uh, of their committee systems and of the chambers generally. And this is a power that the Democrats have been using quite aggressively uh, during the uh, first uh, during the first six months that they've had control of the chamber, and I expect them to continue using aggressively. Uh, as we head forward towards the 2020 election. A lot of the attention has been going to sort of uh, the big three committees, the um, Judiciary Committee chaired by uh, Mr. Nadler, the Oversight and Government Reform Committee chaired by Mr. Cummings, and the Intelligence Committee chaired by Mr. Schiff. Uh, those are sort of the locus of the high-profile, uh, sexier investigations about Trump and Russia or particular scandals with Trump and emoluments and sort of the high-level malfeasance of the Trump administration. But it's important to remember that Every congressional committee uh, has oversight authority in their policy domain and that the Trump administration is ripe with sort of kind of the regular uh, sort of corruption or scandal that embroils almost any administration. It's just happening a lot more in the Trump administration. So when things are going wrong at Interior, at HUD or at HHS, these are all things Congress looks into. And the Democrats obviously have been quite aggressive in looking into these things in the Trump administration, and I certainly expect that to continue. Um, one thing to remember is that this isn't traditional divided government. Um, in traditional government, we think about, sometimes people think about Bill Clinton versus the Republicans, or Barack Obama versus uh, the Republicans in, in the past 20 years. And those were the divided governments where one party has the presidency and the other has Congress. This is a different divided government where the chambers are actually split, with one party controlling the House and the other controlling the Senate. And that uh, produces a very different politics. Uh, mostly because when one party controls all of Congress, they have some more tools at their disposal. Uh, the reconciliation process, which you might remember, is the process that allows uh, certain budgetary bills to pass the Senate without the threat of a filibuster. Uh, that was used to pass both the president's 
uh, tax cut proposal, the GOP tax cuts of 2017, and also the failed attempt to, re to repeal Obamacare in 2017. Uh, that measure, this sort of reconciliation instruction, really isn't possible when the, when the chambers are divided because the chambers are not going to agree on a budget resolution that can set up this reconciliation process. And so that's another feature of this, per uh, this particular divided government is we're not going to be able to see Congress act in these unified ways uh, that you might expect a unified congressional government to do. You know, if the Democrats had both chambers, uh, they would certainly be using this process to uh, force Trump into either signing or vetoing uh, legislation to make all sorts of changes using the reconciliation process. And you're not going to get that. So that procedural tool isn't, isn't available. So you really do have these, these unilateral chambers taking on things that they can do unilaterally. And as I mentioned before, you're getting a lot of messaging bills. So the House has a whole list of you know, bills they want to pass, things about voting rights and their kind of democracy bills, you know, maybe gun control bills. You can get sort of health care things, all these sort of statement bills they want to do uh, that have no chance of going anywhere in the Senate, much less being signed by the president. And of course, the Senate can do the same thing on their priorities. Uh, they may have bills that they want to bring up. These bills may not get out of the Senate because of a filibuster, but they can still put sort of Senate Democrats feet to the fire. And you should expect more of these things uh, over time, as we head towards 2020, these are sort of messaging bills, and that's, that's kind of what we're going to get. I want to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of political dynamics in, in the short term here. And the first one to start with is this August recess. Uh, this is a big deal uh, because Congress is not in town, and that does give the president sort of uh, unilateral or personal or sort of solo standing in Washington during this period of time. And it's an opportunity for the president to really control the messaging uh, more than congressional leaders normally would have the ability to do. Now, a lot of Republicans have not been thrilled with how Mr. Trump has used these uh, over his first uh, two and a half years in office. When he has the mic solo, sometimes he goes off the rails. And uh, you can already kind of see the messaging of the Republicans falling apart. He's in this Twitter beef with um, Congressman Cummings that is getting kind of weird. And not only is that something that the president now has, you know, he doesn't have legislation in his mind. He's not pushing Congress to do anything. So he might move into this silly season. But even more so, it's harder for it to get knocked off the front pages because there's nothing competing with it from the congressional sense. So August recess could be a dangerous time for Republicans. Uh, the president's tweets are going to have the full attention of a lot of the D.C. media because there's really nothing else to cover in town right now. Congress simply isn't here. The other big news uh, this week um, that going forward is going to be important is the number of uh, retirements that we found out about in the House this week. Uh, five uh, Republicans in the House have decided that they are not going to run for re-election in 2020. Uh, a couple of them are in uh, swing districts. Pete Olson in Texas 21 and Will Hurd in Texas 23 are both in districts that they won by narrow margins and probably are ripe for Democratic pickups. Um, uh, other retirements uh, from Republicans come from more longstanding members. But again, this is a signal that maybe some Republicans just aren't interested in taking this on in 2020. We can usually use retirements as a uh, canary in the coal mine for things not going well in congressional elections. And the hit and the herd retirement in particular uh, is probably really devastating to the Republicans. It's really devastating to me personally. I, I think Congressman Hurd, uh, who's a former CIA officer and one of the most hardworking, smartest, diligent really thoughtful members of Congress, sort of the, the, the platonic ideal of what you want a member of Congress to be like. Um, in, in, in my book, one of the best members of Congress right now, it's really going to be sad to lose him uh, in the institution. I did a tweet storm last night uh, about the more general problem of people like Hurd leaving. Now, Hurd is in a swing district, and he may see the writing on the wall that he's not going to win, but the fact that he doesn't want to stick in around and fight is, is sort of indicative of what it means to be a member of Congress right now. And uh, my bigger worry about this 
is um, not a partisan worry, but a more general worry about the institution is that it kind of sucks being a member of Congress right now. It's really a grind. Um, you know, two, two things are happening at the same time. One is the backbench members, sort of the rank and file, have a lot less power uh, in the chamber, particularly in the House, because the leadership has centralized so much control. It's very hard to get amendments uh, on the floor. It's very hard to get a chance to get your legislation moving. The committee process is really locked down. You're not really getting a chance to make policy. And so the things that are fun about the job and interesting about the job to someone like Hurd are becoming less and less available to him. At the same time, the things that are really soul crushing about the job are becoming more and more important. Uh, and that is raising money. And uh, that can be true either if you're in a swing district like Hurd, where there's just tons of money to raise, or if you're in a safe district and worried about a primary challenge or need to raise more money, or if you're in neither of those things, you're just in a safe district where you have the seat, the pressure from the party to raise more money to donate to other members um, has grown in a lot of ways. And so members who are interested in making policy uh, are going to find themselves a lot more bored and frozen into things like going down to the safe houses off campus and dialing for dollars. And that's a real grind. And I can see why people walk away from it. And lots of people have walked away from it over the last decade. And the problem isn't so much that good people are walking away. It's that the people who are replacing them are the types of people who don't mind that structure of life. If you don't mind dialing for dollars all the time and you don't mind having no power in the house and you don't mind your job basically being go to Washington to get you know a little bit of respect and a free lunch and raise money, then you're going to not be so miserable in Washington. And when we have a Congress full of people who fit that profile rather than serious policymakers, that's a real problem for the institution. Um, you know, you know, I guess that's my opinion. It could be good or bad because, you know, the handwriting's on the wall, that Congress is becoming more and more sort of this place where partisan armies gather to sort of execute policy that's not developed internally in Congress, but is developed by the parties or the executive branch outside of Congress. Um, and that's very much not the tradition of the U.S. Congress. It's a tradition of a lot of the parliamentary legislatures around the world. Uh, and so if you're Woodrow Wilson or a thinker who likes the parliamentary system, this is great. Right. Where the Congress just becomes sort of this rubber stamp arena where uh, policies are put into play that were developed elsewhere, either in the executive branch or by the parties external. I mean, that's what the European parliaments are. There's really not a lot of transformation in there where policy is debated and developed and and ideas are generated and refined in those legislatures. They're just rubber stamps for the government. And when the government suggests a policy, their foot soldiers execute it in the legislature. And that's a reasonable system and it works, but it's not kind of the traditional American system and it wouldn't be my preference. I prefer a transformative legislature where individual lawmakers have input into bills and have a chance to amend them and have a chance to develop real policy that's independent of either the executive branch or sort of the external party players and lobbyists and think tanks who kind of s surround that policy milieu. And, you know, this is really going in the wrong direction, in my view. The types of people who are willing to come here and put up with this grind tend to be the types of people who are fine just being loyal partisan soldiers who don't need a big policy-making hand and are just as happy dialing for dollars as they would be making policy. Um, it's scary to the degree some of the freshmen in Congress don't even understand you know, what is possible in the legislature. They have never seen a legislature where lots of amendments are allowed that they can get in. They've never seen a legislature where the committee system has power and the leaders don't just put bills on the floor where they put substitute drafts in in the Rules Committee. And so I think, you know, I think it's a dangerous situation. And watching Heard walk away just... You know, it really just makes me so sad because he's exactly the kind of person, you know, I don't agree with Hurd on, you know, a lot of policy. You know, he um, he's, a, he's a he's a quite conservative Republican, but he is absolutely the type of person I would want to represent uh, me. And if I could copy Hurd 435 times and stick those sorts of people in Congress just from different districts with different sort of uh, policy outlooks, I would do it in a heartbeat. And uh, 
watching him go is going to be really devastating because, you know, chances are a Democrat's going to win that district. It was a really tough slog for him to win last time, and Clinton won that district by multiple points. And some Democrat's going to win it. And uh, chances are, you know, they'll be closer to policy, perhaps to me, perhaps to other people who are on the left. But my guess is that they won't be as good a member of Congress as Will Hurd. And so that's, you know, actually quite devastating to me. The other major sort of development I want to talk about is uh, how the presidential election interacts with the congressional agenda over the next uh, the next 15 months or, or whatever it is until the election. And I think this is important because there's been a lot of talk lately about Pelosi and the Democratic Party or about the squad, uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Presley and Omar and Tlaib and their role in influencing the agenda in Congress. And um, one thing to remember is that the presidential election starts to impinge on the congressional agenda in all sorts of ways. Uh, the most important way is that all the media and all the citizen focus starts to shift to the presidential candidates and away from Congress. So Congress itself uh, becomes less in the news and less important. Policymaking slows down in the run-up to the election, um, typically as they as the parties seek not to sort of put major congressional bills on the table. Obviously, there's exception to this, but generally speaking, uh, policymaking slows down. And the candidates sort of become the focus of, of the media attention and the public attention. And there's a couple of things to say about this. One is that um, the candidates start to be the agenda setters themselves. Uh, that is, we're already working towards the point where Elizabeth Warren uh, or Joe Biden uh, or, or Kamala Harris already have more influence over what people are talking about in the policy space than Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell do, uh, or perhaps even President Trump does in some situations. And that means more and more of the agenda is going to be outsourced to these candidates. Uh, maybe not what happens in Congress, but sort of how we think about politics and what we think is important to be on the congressional agenda going forward is going to be a smaller and smaller microphone for uh, the congressional leadership and a larger and larger microphone for the presidential candidates on the Democratic side. And, you know, this is important for any number of reasons, but most importantly, it's because the constituencies the Democratic candidates are playing to are very different than the constituencies that congressional leaders are playing to. Uh, the Democratic candidates are trying to appeal, first and foremost right now, to a set of primary voters uh, in Democratic primaries. And primary voters tend to be uh, more activist, more extreme. It's the 10 to 20 to 25 percent of the Democratic Party that's actually really interested in politics. And so that's a small slice of the overall electorate that is now going to be driving how these candidates think about things. Um, and so these candidates are going to take positions that often are going to be outside the mainstream. You can already see it sort of in the liberal ring of the party with people like Sanders and Warren uh, talking up uh, strong Medicare for all plans, sort of in their social democratic uh, mindset. And these are things that have literally no chance of passing Congress, not now and not after, you know, the Democrats sweep the election, if that were to happen. They're just not possible. Uh, but they're going to start setting the agenda of the types of things they're going to be talking about, not only within a policy space, but also which policy spaces they're talking about. Um, a Democratic primary is going to be filled with talk about things like health care, uh, which may be Important to a lot of Democrats, but may not be the central agenda of any of the congressional leaders as of this moment. Uh, the other thing that you get in the presidential primaries is sort of a bandwagon effect. And that is as soon as leading candidates start talking about something or other candidates start talking about something, people try to kind of outflank each other, often to the left on these things, to try to get to the primary audience. Uh, you can see this sort of with impeachment. Um, in the beginning, there weren't a lot of presidential candidates calling for impeachment, but as soon as one of them did, a lot of them started heading that direction. And so you get that sort of bandwagon uh, effect. The other thing uh, that's important about the primary elections and congressional politics is that a lot of the candidates are members of Congress. We have a pile of Democratic senators running for office and a fair number of House Democrats. This is more important in the Senate 
where those candidates are going to be prime targets uh, for Leader McConnell to shape messaging votes that specifically attack them uh, and their policy positions. So when uh, the Republicans in the Senate are trying to come up with difficult votes uh, that might put those can- might put the Senate Democrats on the spot, they can be directly aiming uh, at the presidential candidates. So don't be surprised if Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders uh, and Michael Bennett, they all have to uh, be forced to take tough floor votes in the Senate that directly impact uh, their electoral chances. And of course, this is all going to crescendo. We're at the beginning of this now with the debates just starting. But as the primary season approaches, um, all of these things I've just discussed are going to become uh, huge issues both in Congress and outside Congress for the workings of Congress. Uh, you know, and, um, you know, the Democrats in the House are going to try and do the same thing. Uh, sometimes we have this tendency uh, to look at partisans on our own side with sort of rosy glasses. And you can see that, you know, the Republicans spent uh, several years in a Benghazi investigation, uh, almost explicitly dis- to discredit Hillary Clinton. And, you know, you can you can look at the stuff in the House under the same in the same lens of motivation. Obviously, there is legitimate oversight to be done of President Trump. But of course, politics are going to impinge on that. And to the degree the Democrats uh, want to help their election chances, keeping up the heat on Trump corruption from the House is an absolutely reasonable and logical and uh, sensible way to do it. And, and I think they're going to uh, continue to do those things. And uh, so I think uh, I will stop there. Um, there's a lot more to say about all this, but we're hitting almost 30 minutes. I hope you enjoyed uh, this rundown. And uh, if you want to contact me, you can always get me at mattglassman312 at gmail.com, mattglassman312 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at at mattglassman312. And I hope you see you next time on the Five Points Podcast. Thanks.